This is Here Arizona, addressing issues, empowering our community. In central Arizona, there's a megalopolis, a huge cluster of cities and suburbs all in a row. Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tempe, Mesa, and all of these cities are part of Maricopa County. There are about 4 million people here, and it's growing. Phoenix gained more people than any other U.S. city last year, and Maricopa is the fastest growing county in America. For the past few years, around 200 people have been moving here every single day. Chanel Sinclair is one of them. I knew it was beautiful uh, because, you know, the pictures and stuff that my sister was seeing. Chanel came to Arizona from California in 2015. She's a single mom with a teenage son, and she moved here to take care of her sister, who was having health problems. I just planned to make Arizona my home because it was really stressful moving. And, you know, I liked it, Arizona. You know, once I came out here and I liked it, the people. And I come from California, so it was a lot cheaper living out here. <laughs> cheaper. That's the thing. Arizona has always had a reputation for being an affordable place to live. And at first, Chanel was excited by that idea. But once she settled in, got a job, she realized she really couldn't afford any of the places she wanted for her and her son. Nope. It was not a lot of options. So it was it was really hard. It was very hard. So how did this happen? How did the Phoenix area become the kind of place where a single mom who works hard and wants to take care of her family can barely afford rent? That's the question we set out to answer. From here, Arizona, this is Unaffordable. I'm Katherine Davis-Young. I've always wanted a huge kitchen. I mean, me and my sister are always in the kitchen. And then now that my nieces and nephews are, you know, getting older, and my son, he, he loves cooking, I would definitely want a huge, huge kitchen. Just like Chanel, lots of people are moving to Arizona, whether it's for a new job, family, warm weather. And like Chanel, a lot of these people are probably imagining open space and big houses with backyards and sunshine, like California, but less expensive. I saw wide, handsome streets. I saw hundreds of attractive, well-groomed homes priced between 11000 and 17005 Arizona has this reputation as being a super affordable place to live, so is it? It used to be the case. That is no longer the case. If you want to know about housing and affordability in Arizona, you talk to Joan Service. Service is the executive director of the Arizona Housing Coalition, one of the major players working to prevent homelessness and advocate for affordable housing in the state. There's not enough. There's not enough affordable housing. There's not enough what some would call workforce housing. So, kind you know, middle. Yeah, middle. So, you know, there's teachers that aren't able to live in their own community because of uh, not making enough money and uh, the rent being so astronomical. Chanel is one of those Arizona teachers. She works with children with special needs. I definitely don't earn a lot, but you know what, honestly, we always say we do not do it for the money. We do it for the passion. Because even though my children, they'll fight, they'll spit, they do, but at the end of the day, they say, I love you. They'll draw a picture. That touches my heart. But no matter how passionate Chanel is about her job, she's not making enough to have the kind of life she wants for herself and her son. 
Arizona now has the third most severe affordable housing shortage in the country, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. That means for every 100 extremely low-income people in the state, there are only 25 potential places they could afford to live. What happens to the other 75? Where are they supposed to live? If Arizona doesn't make any changes, everything stays exactly how it is right now, uh, what's what's going to happen? I, I would imagine that we're going to see an increase in, in families, um, individuals, seniors, youth on their own, living on the streets. It keeps going. Every night we see homeless families that are seeking shelter that don't have anywhere to go. You look at San Francisco, Seattle, we're not there, but we're not. We're not as far as people think. The consequences, and I think we're experiencing some of that right now, as we're seeing a growing homeless population, and that growing homeless population is in the neighborhoods and much more visible. Beyond this tile-roofed residence is a truly fantastic pool. And talk about a natural setting, well, the word is wow. The Valley of the Sun is no longer the happy paradise it was supposed to be. And that's due to a combination of factors. Lots of people are moving here, wages haven't been rising, the state's budget for affordable housing isn't where it once was. But some of the pressure on the housing market we're feeling now dates back all the way to the founding of the city in the late 1800s. I would describe Phoenix as it's almost like a perpetually new place. Ben Stanley is a postdoctoral researcher at ASU's School of Sustainability. Much of his research has focused on Phoenix history and development. I think Phoenix has been indebted to growth throughout its history, from its very founding up to the present day. Imagine how the Phoenix area must have looked in those early years. Cacti, desert, the Salt River. The thing Phoenix had to offer was space, a lot of it, and it was cheap. Plus, there was a little irrigation and a lot of sun. It was the perfect place to start a farm. Phoenix was a wholly agricultural city, and, and just the nature of agriculture led to a lot of small little town sites scattered around the arable lands in the valley. But at the time, you know, Phoenix, Tempe, Mesa, Glendale, Peoria were all separate farming settlements. So the region was intentionally being built in a decentralized, spread out way. But some of the people moving here weren't just in it for their little plot of land, they were speculators. Yeah, from the very founding of the Phoenix town site, most of the settlers were engaged in land speculation and did not just want to live in Phoenix and eke out a quality of life from farming. They wanted to get rich quick by selling other lots that they had bought cheap to newcomers. In those first few decades, Phoenix was already dependent on development and sprawl. Then growth really started to accelerate. Phoenix changed drastically in the 1930s under the New Deal, but especially with the start of World War II. When the war first started, the federal government was looking to ramp up the war effort, and Phoenix was a, a great location for a lot of different things. In particular, one, air bases, because of the climate here and its inland location away from the enemy. Thousands of American and British pilots trained at airfields in Glendale, Goodyear, Phoenix, Scottsdale, and Mesa. And wartime defense industry spending brought more workers and investment to the region than Arizona had ever seen. And once the ball started getting rolling on growth, it never stopped. 
Not long after, Motorola, Intel, and other businesses launched operations in the valley. Meanwhile, air conditioning was becoming more common, and Phoenix's summer temperatures suddenly seemed a little more tolerable. More and more families were buying cars, so moving farther away from big city centers didn't seem like such a big deal either. And with the baby boom, a whole lot of people were suddenly looking for a place in the suburbs where they could get a cheap new house with a big backyard to raise a family. Phoenix was an easy sell. Well, this is Phoenix today, a booming dark horse of the desert which, within a few years, may have a larger population than Boston or Philadelphia. And hear this. Between 1940 years, and 1950, Phoenix's population nearly doubled, from around 65,000 to over 100,000. Between 1950 and 1960, the population more than quadrupled to over 400,000. It was the era of suburbia and single-family houses, and that was what people wanted and that was what Phoenix Builders built. John Talton is a historian and journalist who's written extensively and pretty critically about Phoenix's development and economy. He lives in Seattle now, but was born and raised in Arizona. I'm a fourth-generation Arizonan, and so I love this city. So you, you'd like to see the city do better? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, why, why write about any of this? Why bring up any of these issues if not only Phoenix can do better, but it is shooting itself in the foot and reloading so much of the time? Talton sees a lot of problems with Phoenix's obsession with growth and sprawl. Sure, many American cities grew out of city centers and into the suburbs in the 60s, but unlike older cities, Phoenix never had that dense city center to begin with. Pretty soon, the city was mostly just sprawl. Well, sprawl in and of itself is very expensive, so it looks like this is free, but it's not free. It looks like you're getting a cheap house in the suburbs, but that means you're having to commute to your job from farther and farther away. Ben Stanley says that's expensive for families and the city. The actual just growth of those settlements poses a lot of problems for a city in terms of how do we provide resources and services to people living way out on the, on the fringe. So the cost of providing sewer service and water service and utilities and, and sending that way out miles and miles from the core of a city is extremely expensive. And it is something that developers don't really want to talk about and in the decades after World War II, the Metro Phoenix area was actually expanding so fast that a lot of the city's economy was being driven by the growth itself. The whole region started to become dependent on construction jobs and real estate and housing development. It doesn't seem especially sustainable, not just for actual environmental reasons, but just for economic reasons. How do you have an economy that constantly requires more people to move to the area, it constantly requires unending construction, and so on. There might have been an illusion of prosperity in that everyone thinks they're making money, but we're forgetting about, you know, the bills that are going to come later. 
and the bills did come later. We're down by between three and four and a half percent generally across these markets. A lot of their customers are freaked out waiting to see how low the Dow will go. They're focused on the losing streak in the Dow that in percentage terms puts it on par close to the loss suffered in that crash in the most serious recession in decades. And that means life as most Americans know it is about to change in some cases dramatically. In the housing market collapse of 2008, Phoenix, some would say very predictably, was one of the hardest hit areas of the country. There's no industry that's not affected when the housing market goes like this because there's so much connected to that, so much especially in a region that's so dependent on construction. And Joanna Lucio is an associate professor in the ASU School of Public Affairs. She studies housing policies in Phoenix and beyond. We were left with a lot of empty houses, um, a lot of foreclosures, a lot of people left homeless. In 2007, median home prices in the Phoenix area were more than $260,000. By 2010, prices were half that. Thousands of people in the Phoenix area lost their jobs, their homes, their savings. And as tax revenue plummeted, the state lost its money too. Suddenly, so many people needed government assistance, and the state couldn't provide it. Jones Service says one of the programs on the chopping block was Arizona's State Housing Trust Fund. It was capped because it was the Great Recession. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, everyone was strapping down. Before the recession, when the economy was booming, the state of Arizona used to take money from unclaimed property, basically dormant bank accounts or tax returns people don't take back, and they would put some of that money toward housing programs. You know, it built homes for the for our vulnerable population. It provided some disaster relief, um, housing relief. It assisted with rural homeownership, so it wasn't just a, a tool for the Phoenix metropolitan area, but it, it served the whole state. That fund used to give the state as much as $40 million a year to put toward those kinds of programs. But in 2010, that number was capped at just $2.5 million. The statewide investment uh, to address affordable housing and homelessness has been paltry. Um, we have approximately $5 million from the state. How much um, do other states invest compared to $5 million? Right, so $5 million is not a lot. Um, so, for example, Massachusetts invests $400 million to address housing and homelessness. Everyone in Arizona felt the impact of the recession. The housing development that once kept the economy afloat came screeching to a halt. The state dramatically reduced funding to help out with affordable housing. But at the same time, there was suddenly a lot of cheap foreclosed property available. And so just like in the early days of Phoenix, the speculators started to roll into town. Here's Ben Stanley. There were a lot of vacant lots scattered all around the Arts District that had not attracted any development interest in 30, 40 years, but were starting to be bought up very rapidly by people often from out of the state. But it became sort of a merry-go-round of buying and selling often completely vacant dirt lots. Say, in the early 2000s, a property would be priced at about $10 a square foot for a completely vacant piece of land in, near downtown Phoenix. And often after being bought and sold about six times in the span of two years, these properties went up to over $100 a square foot. So in many times, these properties went up tenfold in value without any improvement whatsoever being done to the property itself. 
Stanley's research focused on downtown Phoenix, but the practice was common throughout the valley. Land speculation is a way of extracting value from just property itself and putting it into a private bank account. And when that happens, when land is actually developed into something productive, it's just necessarily going to be at a higher cost. So the recession ends, the economy starts to recover, and housing prices suddenly start rising. Fast. In the last few years, a lot of people started moving to Phoenix again. They're coming for jobs at ASU or in the healthcare industry. And in some cases, they're just fleeing California's housing crisis. Like we said, Maricopa County is growing faster than anywhere else in the U.S. The thing is, during the recession, no one was really building new housing in Phoenix, which means there's not enough housing to meet the demand of this growing population. And when supply is low and demand is high, prices increase. Rents here are now going up about twice as fast as they are in the rest of the country. And even with demand so desperately high across the market, for the most part, the only way developers can afford to build in central Phoenix right now is to build units that they know they'll be able to charge the highest possible price for. I am standing in downtown Phoenix at the corner of 3rd and Pierce Streets, right across the street from a big construction site. There are people in hard hats, there's construction equipment, there are gates. And the sign on the side says, Luxury Rentals, coming 2019. And when you look around downtown Phoenix, you see a ton of construction going on like this. Uh, and most of these new apartments and condos that are going in are all advertising this kind of high-end luxury rental. This kind of thing is happening across the country, but especially in the Phoenix area. According to multi-housing news, more than 90% of new rental units being built in Phoenix are high-end. But John Talton says if you're moving here from someplace else that's even more expensive, California, I'm looking at you, those luxury or market-rate rent prices actually might not look so shocking when you start scrolling through Craigslist apartment listings. When you compare Phoenix to its peer cities, Phoenix is incredibly affordable. The problem is, is that Phoenix is based on a low-wage economy. And so if your pay is low, rent that somebody from Seattle would say, oh my gosh, that's so affordable, is not going to be affordable because you're not making that much money. Housing prices in Arizona have mostly recovered in the years since the recession. Wages mostly haven't. Jones Service agrees. Incomes are not keeping up and rent is so expensive. So if you think about the fact that a full-time wage earner makes about $12 in the state of Arizona, you have to work 56 hours per week to afford a modest one-bedroom apartment. Now think about the fact that um, if that wage earner, that low-wage earner, is a single parent, they're going to be further strapped to put food on the table, find adequate childcare address any health crisis. So, decades of land speculation inflate prices in central Arizona. The area is intentionally designed for sprawl, putting strain on infrastructure and allowing unsustainable expansion. 
The city's whole economy becomes balanced on that growth. That all collapses in 2008. Construction stops, but speculation continues. So when more people start moving to the state, there's nowhere for them to live. Demand increases, rent prices rise, wages don't, and the state funding to help ease all of this tension is cut back and never fully restored. We're at a tipping point. Since 2014, we've seen a, an increase of 149% of folks living on the streets. Joanna Lucio from ASU says homelessness is just the most extreme indicator of the issue. Arizonans across the economic spectrum are having a harder and harder time affording the cost of living. When it starts to be the middle class that are suffering and we start seeing just the greater numbers of individuals moving here and realizing, oh, they're not finding housing. They're moving far out to buy housing. They can't live in the city that they actually thought they were going to have a job. One of the, you know, we used to be, uh, be able to say, we're affordable. This is an affordable place to live. Come from California. This is a great place. It ends up not um, being affordable. And then why would people move here? Chanel, a single mom who actually did move here from California, knows this firsthand. For single mothers and single fathers like myself, I think that we work hard, you know, and we don't really ask for a handout. Like me, I'm school and, and working full time and a single mother. I think more places like low income apartments and housing should be available because it was hardly any available. When it comes to affordable housing in Maricopa County, it's desperately needed. It is desperately needed. History has created a scenario where a hardworking single parent can no longer afford a place to live here. But what exactly do we mean when we say affordable? That's in the next episode. You just listened to Unaffordable from Here, Arizona. That's H-E-A-R, Arizona. This podcast is made possible by support from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. Since we're a brand new show, please tell all your friends to check us out. You can search for Here, Arizona wherever you get your podcasts. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here, Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In this episode, you heard from the Arizona Housing Coalition. For more information about that organization and other Arizona nonprofits that work on the issue of housing, head over to our resource page at hearearizona.org. Also, special thanks on this episode to Habitat for Humanity. Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, Soundbite, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was reported, written, and produced by Rachel Aronoff and me, Katherine Davis-Young, with contributions from Paul Atkinson. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thanks for listening.